What's a long time to wait in our Amazon culture? <laughs> Two-day delivery, is that okay? One day? Same day by drone? I mean, what's reasonable to really have to wait? What about these 17 days we got to wait till Christmas? Is that a long time? Or say the 13 months of a typical American engagement, is that a long time to wait? 15 seasons like our Washington Nationals had to wait? 27 seasons up to infinity like the Redskins have to wait? 108 years like Bill's Cubs had to wait? What's a long time? What about 730 years? Roughly three times the age of the United States of America. That's a lot of waiting. That's a lot of anticipation. That was the situation in Israel on that night when Jesus was born. And what were they anticipating so hotly for over 700 years? A whole lot of things, but most particularly a king like no other. A king that is described in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This prophecy promised a glorious turnaround for a crushed and hurting nation. Israel anticipated her true king. Isaiah 9 came at a very bad time in Israel's history. The mighty Assyrian Empire had hammered northern Israel, particularly the tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali that are called out in verse 1. These are the lands that are to the west and the north of what we know as the Sea of Galilee. After the Assyrians conquered this territory, they moved many of the, the native Israelites away and then brought in pagan foreigners to replace the population. Today we would call this ethnic cleansing. And they redrew the borders and the boundaries of the land and carved out three new Assyrian provinces that correspond to what 
what Isaiah speaks of in verse 1, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the nations. This prophecy was very specific in relating to the historical events taking place at the time. This is that anguish that Isaiah speaks of. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. See, God had good news for Israel. Their fortunes were going to change dramatically. Out of the darkness of pagan occupation would dawn a new and glorious light from God. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. God promised that despite their present devastation, they would one day see great joy and fruitfulness in Israel. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And the joy was going to flow from three specific promises unfolding in the next verses. First, God promised freedom from oppression. Verse 4 depicts a miraculous breaking of the symbols of cruelty and oppression for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. Now a yoke was used to bind and control working animals like oxen, forced to work on the farm. The staff and the rod were being used to to beat and control the people of Israel, and God promised freedom, and He promised it was going to come miraculously because He points them to the day of Midian. And that is describing something all the way back in the book of Judges, chapters 6 and 7, when Gideon was victorious. Gideon was a man who lived in this exact same region of northern Israel. So this was a story that would resonate with these people as they were beaten down by the Assyrian Empire. He lived in this land of Naphtali and Zebulun many hundreds of years earlier. And when God raised Gideon up to relieve the oppression of his people at the hands of the Midianites, he, he was particular in this case. He wanted to make sure that only he, God, got the credit for what he was about to do. And so he did this remarkable thing. He told Gideon to send all his soldiers home except for 300. And then he delivered a miraculous military victory that freed the people of this land, the same land that is described in Isaiah 9, from oppression and cruelty. And so here in verse 4, he is promising freedom once more. He promises victorious peace. That is what verse 5 is talking about, destroying the abandoned artifacts of war, combat boots and bloody clothing. This was the kind of destruction that would be done after a hard-fought peace was achieved. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. See, burning the remnants of war like this was something you did to celebrate a mighty victory that you were dedicating to the Lord. So instead of, instead of cleaning the stuff up and keeping it for yourself, you would burn it as an offering up to the God who gave you victory. And then we get the most extraordinary promise, in which God promises an eternal king descended from King David who would nonetheless be God himself. 
Verse 6 promises a child will be born to be king, wise, benevolent, caring, and peaceful. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, clearly this child is going to be a great king. He'll be full of wisdom. That's what makes him a wonderful counselor. Right? He will be kind and caring and benevolent. That's what, makes it, that's what makes him an everlasting father. He will create and maintain peace. That's what makes him a prince of peace. But he's not just going to be some ordinary or even extraordinary child. For he would also be mighty God. This child of promise would be God himself in in some way that had to have been inexplicably difficult for the people of Israel to understand or even imagine. Right? It would be hard for them. They they strongly and fiercely understood the, the unity and the uniqueness of God. So I have to imagine they struggled to picture how God himself would be born as a child to rule their nation and be descended from King David. It was a head-scratcher for sure. But it was God's promise. Verse 7 gave more detail of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He would be a king of righteousness and justice. He would be descended from the great king David. And we should realize that even at the time of this prophecy in roughly the 730s B.C., there had not been in the northern part of Israel a king descended from David in at least 200 years. And so here is this promise that there would be a true and genuine king anointed by God the way the kings were traditionally anointed. And the word for being anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. And the Greek word for being anointed is Christos. This king descended from David would be Messiah. He would be Christ. And God promised he would be a king forever, ruling over an ever-growing kingdom of ever-increasing peace. And so we have to imagine that to a war-torn, devastated people living under foreign occupation, this was an extraordinary promise that could not come true soon enough. We have to imagine that they would just say, when, Lord, when? When would this happen? And alas, Israel would have to wait seven centuries until that night. For unto us a king was born. By that first Christmas, this Davidic king was eagerly, I would even say desperately, anticipated the the Assyrians were long gone. They'd been conquered by the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem. The Babylonians were long gone. They'd been conquered by the Persians who let Jerusalem be rebuilt. The Persians were long gone. They'd been conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks weren't that bad, except they insisted on everyone adopting Greek culture, so they had forced deep and, and lasting ongoing corruption into the native Jewish culture. After the death of Alexander the Great, Israel fell under the reasonably peaceful rule of the Ptolemies in Egypt until they were betrayed and defeated by the Seleucids who hated the Jews. 
slaughtered the faithful, destroyed the scriptures, defiled the temple. And so God raised a revolt that threw them out. There was a little time of Jewish home rule before the Romans came along. And eventually, after a, a vicious and bloody tug of war between they and the neighboring Parthian Empire, the Romans ruled the roost in Israel. That was the situation that first Christmas. Israel was ruled by King Herod, who was an extraordinary engineer, but a vicious and depraved and tyrannical despot. He was adept at playing Roman political games, and that had allowed him to be named King of Israel. But, but be clear, he's not descended from David. He's not even from Israel. He's only half Jewish. The Roman army enforced his rule because Herod was a thoroughly Roman kind of guy. And so cultural infection was everywhere. And so there was this burning desire to throw the Roman oppressors out quickly and violently. They were waiting for this Messiah to come and do that. False messiahs had been popping up and would continue to pop up for years to come. Violent assassins and terrorists were opposed, were, were in operation trying to, to get rid of the Romans by force. We need to understand that Israel at the time of, of the birth of Christ and the years afterwards was a boiling cauldron of political unrest that was tightly, tightly controlled by the oppressive rule of Herod. They were eagerly anticipating their king. Jesus is that king who fulfilled God's promises. Earlier, Audra read the visit of the wise men to see Jesus. These magi, magoi in the Greek, the magi in our English, these were men who were adept at reading the astronomical signs, who, who knew that a great and long-promised king had finally been born in Israel. They saw this star that indicated to them a king of the Jews had been born. And so these wise and wealthy men made a long and dangerous journey from a rival empire just to come and worship the newborn king. Jesus was indeed descended from, God, from David, and though he was born in Bethlehem in the region of Judea, where would he spend his life? He would spend the majority of his life from childhood onward in Nazareth and Capernaum, the region of Galilee, the part of the world Isaiah was talking about in verse 1. Jesus is the great and glorious light prophesied in verse 2. Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 reports, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As an adult, Jesus made it clear, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, Jesus is the child born, the son given to be king, bringing freedom from tyranny. But, but the thing that they were not expecting was that it was not 
tyranny from foreign empires and oppression. Rather, he came to free us from the tyranny of mankind's oldest enemies, sin and death. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. His wise teaching astounded everyone who heard him, even when he was a boy. Among those today, even, who have not yet accepted who he truly is, his wisdom is undisputed. Jesus is mighty God. His extraordinary miracles that demonstrated limitless power over nature and over the supernatural and demonic forces of the world and over disease and disability and death. The miracles by which he repeated the great works of God in making food in the wilderness and crossing the water miraculously prove he is mighty God. Jesus is the everlasting Father, not only one with God the Father, but that benevolent protector who cares for, comforts, loves, and strengthens the weakest and the most vulnerable and the rejected and most outcast in society. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He created peace and reconciliation between sinful mankind and God. If you turn back all the way to the beginning of Genesis, you see mankind rebelled against God's will and standard, and and it was a rebellion that separated us from God seemingly forever. In the Old Testament, God revealed what it would take for us to be able to enter His pure and perfect and holy and righteous presence. And let's face it, it was impossible. For hundreds and hundreds of years, it was made clear, it's impossible, right? It is The Old Testament demonstrates repeatedly our inability to meet God's standard of perfection. It unpacks our deep-seated desire to do what, whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. Or as we translate it in 2019 in America, you do you and I'll do me. That does not work. We have this deep-seated desire to do whatever is right in our own eyes, but the Old Testament makes clear we can't ever get right with God on our own merits and strengths and abilities because we have none compared to the awesome, perfect God of the universe. Try as we might, we can never do enough good deeds, say enough good words, and think enough good thoughts to be perfectly holy and righteous. No matter how many times we pray or how often we go to church or how rigidly we discipline our bodies against sin or how well we control our tongue from saying harsh things we shouldn't, we will inevitably fail. Each of us has something that pulls us in a direction we shouldn't go. Every single one of us. Maybe it's our temper, our pride. Lust, desire for comfort, pleasure, need for security, insistence on control, desire for status or appreciation or money or accomplishment, whatever it is, right, it exists. We all have something that appeals powerfully to our hearts to try and get us to rebel against God's good plan for our lives. And no matter how hard we try to control it, we will inevitably trip up and fail. Maybe it happens often. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it only happens when we're tired or we're stressed out or we're beaten up or we're disappointed. But it happens. 
We all sin and fall short of God's glory. And that sin is rebellion against God. And let's be clear what rebellion against God is. It is warfare against God's will and design for our lives. And we cannot stop that war even if we are horrified by it. We might declare a temporary truce with God, but eventually we slip back into warfare. But Jesus entered our world that first Christmas night to end the war. He is the Prince of Peace. He came to create peace between us and God, to reconcile us to our Creator, not because we deserve it or because we have earned it, but because God loves us and He desires to reconcile us to Him because He desires to be in relationship with us. And so Jesus was born on Christmas to die on Good Friday and rise from the dead on Easter. The child born to us, the Son given us, is the innocent, eternal, and perfect Son of God. He would grow up to demonstrate all those qualities Isaiah promised and to live the life of holy perfection and victory over every temptation that we can't And then he died for us as a sacrifice. Innocence. Infinite. Sacrifice of blood. To pay the penalty for all the sin we've ever sinned and all the sin we're ever going to sin. And through his death and resurrection, our sins are erased once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our anointed King. By God's grace, we experience reconciliation. We have peace with God. Colossians 1, 19-22 proclaim, For in Him, in Jesus, in that baby, born in that manger, the one the Magi came to worship, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, all of us, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, a peace that he bought with his own blood. And all we have to do to experience that peace is accept his invitation to follow me. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive that limitless grace of God that washes our slates clean, all of our guilt erased, all of our shame washed away, our identity transformed because Jesus is our long-anticipated King. And today, Jesus reigns as King with all authority. His physical resurrection from the dead was his coronation, and he reigns over the entire universe. In Matthew 28, 18, he told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king right now today of heaven and earth. As I speak this morning, as we are gathered here today, it is Jesus who holds this universe together. It is he who enforces the so-called laws of nature by His will and power. Colossians 1.17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
As God promised through Isaiah, his kingdom rule and peace will increase until one day he defeats all evil at his return. As Philippians 2, 9-12 celebrates, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 19 speaks graphically of the overwhelming, triumphant future victory of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, over all evil and opposition. I won't read it to you now, but I would encourage you to read it this afternoon and get excited for the return of our King. Because that's how the story of this earth is going to end. And as His followers, we should eagerly anticipate Christ's return. But I want to spend just a few minutes this morning during this busy season of preparation and anticipation and encourage each of us here to contemplate a simple question. Is Christ your king? He's the king of the universe, but is he your king? I want to encourage you, don't just quickly say yes and move on. Don't just check the box and say, I'm good, let's move on. Think about your life. Think about the busyness of your days. Think about all your activities and expenditures this month. Think about everything you are anticipating or or dreading in this month of celebration. Think about all that you do each weekday, each weekend, and each evening. Who rules your life? Who sets your agenda? If God were to look at the calendar on your wall or your computer or your phone, who would he say rules your life? Who's your king? What is your credit card and bank statements? What do they say about who your king is? Is it Jesus? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids or your grandkids, your boss or your career, your college dreams or your ambitions? Is it fun, sports, pleasure, Disney Plus? Got to get the Mandalorian one. Money, friends, approval, fame, achievements. We all serve someone or something. We all have a ruler who sets the agenda for our lives. And it's just a question of who or what it is. Is it Jesus? Of course, this answer has to first begin by by asking whether Jesus is your Savior. Have you truly embraced Him as the only way to be reconciled with God by putting your faith in His sacrificial death and resurrection? If you haven't made that decision, I just pray and pray, pray that you would make that decision today. But if He is your Savior, if you have embraced Him as Savior, He must also be your King. And yet, let's be honest. In the busyness of Northern Virginia in 2019, we struggle with this in our daily lives. Not because we set out to say, Nah, Jesus, you're not the King. 
but because we let the other forces in our lives rule us without even intending to. But having Jesus as our king is the definition of a disciple. Once he revealed his authority, Jesus explained what a disciple was because he told us to make disciples. So he said what it looks like to make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Observing, keeping, obeying all Jesus has commanded. That's what it means to have Jesus as our king. Is Christ your king? We're not called to like him on Facebook or Instagram or to cheer him on, or to make him one priority among many. He is to be the priority of our lives from which all the other priorities, even our families, flow out of the love and obedience we have towards Jesus Christ, our King. That is hard. But he promises great reward when we embrace him truly as our King, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. As we embrace the kingship of Jesus, as we let him truly govern every aspect of our lives, we begin to experience ever more fully and richly all that was anticipated that first Christmas. The light, the freedom, the peace, the power, and the presence. This is the promise of God. So is Christ your king? this Christmas. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, let's keep this simple, that Christ be our King. Lord, help us to turn over all of the aspects of our lives, not just the the church box that we keep our portion of our life in, but every compartment and nook and cranny of our heart and soul, school and work, family and fun. Let us turn it all over to Christ our King. Father God, may the light of the world rule ever more powerfully in our hearts that we may ever more richly experience the peace, the freedom, the victory, the wisdom, the glory of His reign in our life that brings honor and glory to You through our lives. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we worship in song, I want to just give an opportunity for anyone who does want to respond to just come forward, and, and whether it is to kneel and pray up front or to talk to Pastor Neil or myself about areas of your life where you wish to surrender to the rule of God. 
where you just wish to confess that you've been holding part of your life back from God, I want to encourage you to respond as the Lord leads.